Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The title of our study this morning is Enoch and the High Priest. And with a title like that, I'm sure you're sitting there guessing right now, what in the world is he going to talk about? Uh, Enoch and the high priest. Well, uh, Enoch, I, I used Enoch because he's representative of a, of a special group of people that were taken to heaven in the Old Testament. Of course, there's only three there, Enoch and Moses and Elijah. Remember that. And, uh, and then we're going to see what connection there is between them and between the high priest. And we, of course, know who the high priest is. So uh, hopefully it'll unfold as we go along. But uh, the point I want to focus on, and it's kind of similar to the theme that we're discussing through this camp is to uplift and magnify Christ in such a way that we get a fresh perspective of Him that will revive us. That's the whole point of looking at Christ. If we look and we're not changed by beholding, then we're not really looking or we're not seeing what we're meant to see. Isn't that right? And so, you know, Ahmad was talking about revival. In order to really be revived is to catch a glimpse of Christ in such a way that we are so changed. And this is what I'm hoping to accomplish uh, through this study, that we can see Christ and see what he has done and what he has accomplished in such a way that it will revolutionize our experience. So this is, uh, this is our aim. And this is where we want to get at. And we want to, to see that hopefully from, from a different angle, from the perspective of, of Enoch and, and his friends, Enoch and Moses and Elijah, and we're going to see a before and after situation that uh, pertains to them. I want to begin with a little story, and uh, the story helps illustrate the points we're going to be examining a little later. And the story is told of a, of a man who wanted to buy a large estate uh, with a beautiful house on it. It was, uh, it was really his, his dream home. He had finally found it. And so he took out a loan, and uh, he was able to obtain the property and moved in straight away. He was very happy. He was very excited and lived there for many years. And he was making changes and, and adjusting it and making it just like he had dreamed about. And uh, he was enjoying, uh, of course, what he had just obtained. And uh, all these things he enjoyed so long as he faithfully made the repayments. Isn't that right? Because when he took out a loan, he, he made a promise that he would pay a certain amount to repay the loan. That promise was, of course, his contract. So long as he did that on time, he could enjoy all that. And he lived as a king in his palace, so to speak. But after many, many years and through a number of uh, poor business deals, he found himself penniless and he was not able to make his next repayment. And a little time passed and he missed more and more repayments. And at last, the bank had to take action because he was not able to make his payments. And they came and they repossessed his property and they evicted him out of his, out of his uh, home that uh, was his so long as he had paid the repayments. You see, his promise and his contract to pay back the loan allowed him to live in this house as if it was his own. But it was not really his own until he had made the very last repayment. Isn't that right? Now, uh, this is something I think we're all familiar with. That's how the world runs today. And unfortunately, because he didn't, he couldn't. And when he 
paid and made that last repayment, something would change as far as him and his house. Then it was truly and finally his. Isn't that right? No one could come and kick him out after that, as far as you know, ownership is concerned, at least. And even though before he made the, last, the final repayment, he was still living in the house, and he, he, every, nothing really essentially changed, but something as far as the security of this place belonging to him forever, so to speak, happens after he makes that last repayment. Now, this story illustrates something. I want us to keep that in the back of our minds because it illustrates something that we will examine in this study as far as Enoch and Moses and Elijah. I want to look at Enoch and Moses and Elijah, like I said, in a before and after circumstance. And that's not when they were on earth and then when they went to heaven. There's actually a before and after circumstance while they are in heaven. That's what we want to explore together. So we'll start off with uh, what the Bible tells us about Enoch in Genesis 5. And this is just a quick revision because we're familiar with that. It says in verse 23 and 24, And all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And uh, I want to do a little uh, timeline here. And, uh, of course, Enoch was taken to heaven. Does anyone know how long after the creation Enoch went to heaven? Seven generations. Seven generations. And in years, anyone, any idea? Or, or how long before Christ? Maybe that's easier. Because this is our, our marker in time here. This is Christ. And, uh, of course, this is... From creation to Christ is approximately, from the fall at least, is approximately 4,000 years. Anyone know how many years before Christ was Enoch taken? Okay, it's approximately 3,000 years. Okay, so we can put that there. Uh, that means he's been there for a long time. Adam, uh, of course, uh, would have talked to Enoch for a very long time. And uh, less than 1,000 years had passed of Earth's history and Enoch was taken to heaven. And of course, like I said, he's been there a very long time. I just want to put it this way so we can look at it in perspective and maybe appreciate a little bit what it means. Enoch has witnessed the majority of the history of the planet being played out. You know, we're, we're down here, okay? We're on this, this side of the cross. He's been watching for a very long time what's going on. And uh, of course, he's not alone there. Uh, the next one I want to look at is Moses. And Moses... Uh, is mentioned in Jude 1 and verse 9. It says, But Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. So what was happening here? Of course, Michael, the archangel, is Christ. He comes down for the purpose of what? To resurrect the body of Moses. And then all of a sudden, the devil comes and he says, Hold on a minute. What do you think you're doing? You have no right to resurrect Moses because he is a sinner. And the wages of sin is death. So there was this contention. Christ, of course, doesn't enter into debate with him. He rebukes and says, the Lord rebuke thee. And he resurrects Moses. And we're going to see the significance of that in a minute, uh, a little further. But I don't want us to miss the point also that Moses has the unique position of being the very first person in the entire history of the universe to be resurrected from the dead. Up until that time, uh, the grave has been a dead end. Everybody who went there never came back. The very first time that that happens is this incident right here. Now, of course, as you know, Moses has a very unique 
position. He was the mediator as far as Israel is concerned. He was their leader. And uh, God said, you know, when I speak to Moses, I speak to him openly, face to face. And so uh, Moses here was resurrected. Ever wondered how long after Moses died was he resurrected? That, that question ever crossed your mind? Okay, I wondered about that, and, uh, and so I went looking. Uh, in the Spirit of Prophecy, it tells us he was in the grave a short time, and then he was resurrected. And Jewish tradition actually says it was three days. Isn't that interesting? So he dies. Three days later, Christ comes, and he resurrects Moses and takes him to heaven. The Bible tells us that the Israelites mourned for Moses after his death for 30 days. He was already in heaven. After three days, if three is the right uh, number of short days. Interesting, isn't that right? And they sit around the mountain mourning and weeping and crying for Moses. He's already up there in the kingdom. And of course, in the kingdom, he would have been uh, welcomed at the gate, probably by Enoch. Now, how many years is Moses before the cross? Okay, just wait for the number to go up. That's easier. <laughs> Anyone know just uh, roughly? Okay, it's about 1,500 years, roughly. I'm saying roughly because we don't have the exact date. So around, that's, that's close enough. It, it's not that, that significant. So 1,500 years before Christ uh, was when Moses was, and he dies, he, he's resurrected. He goes to heaven with uh, Enoch. He is there. And uh, I remember that uh, it was an interesting incident that happened in the life of Moses because he, he did this... Uh, the sin, you know, with the, with the rock and the, and the stick and, and, and God told him, look, you, you can't go into the promised land. And Moses pled with God a number of times to the point that God told him, Moses, don't, don't talk to me about this anymore. You know, there was a connection there and, and Moses didn't know what God had in mind. It didn't take long for God after he died to send his son and resurrect and say, Moses, come up here. I had a better idea. I just couldn't tell you about it right then. And so it's, it's quite, quite interesting. And of course, the last one, we're going to talk about is Elijah and 2 Kings 2.11 records for us. It came to pass as they went on and talked that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Okay, we're familiar with that story, of course. Here is Elijah. How long before Christ is Elijah? Okay, roughly about 850 uh, BC. Okay, so here are these three men who have spent hundreds of years together in the kingdom. They must have grown really close because they're from the same neighborhood, planet Earth. There's no other humans in heaven. And they can share a certain experience and uh, relate that with each other that others don't really know. So they would have been really close. They would have been uh, talking and discussing things, I'm sure, of what was happening. And of course, uh, not only them, but also they would have been discussing things with Christ. And I would uh, imagine that one of their most common subject of discussion and conversation is the very important plan of salvation. The time when Christ would come. Because all this time, remember, Christ has not yet come. You see, their discussion about the plan of salvation was so significant because it relates in a special way to them. They are human beings. Now, we often think of these men who have gone to heaven, Enoch and Moses and Elijah, uh, in that we think of them as having made it, right? They made it. They're in the kingdom. They have eternal life. That's it. You know, I wish maybe if I was also taken to heaven, we might think. 
And we don't think of them as, as having anything to do with all the woes and troubles and trials that we go uh, through in this world. They're, they're safe, they're secure, they've made it, they're in the kingdom. Now I want to challenge that thought a little bit. I want you to think about it carefully. In other words, did they have anything to look forward to even though they're already in heaven? And the answer is, of course, yes, it's good. Well, what were they looking forward to? The coming of Christ. Now, why would they look forward to the coming of Christ? It's important because it's plan of salvation. It relates to humanity. But I want to put to you the thought that their place and their position in heaven was not secure until the promise of the Savior was fulfilled. Even though they were already in heaven, they were safe, but they were not secure. Now, we don't generally think of them in this way. So I, that might take some adjusting. So bear with me as we, as we nod it out together. Something as far as their place and their position in heaven was still dependent on what Christ would one day accomplish. And so this is why their conversations with Christ would have been most interesting because it's still related directly to them and where they were. Now, of course, in the scriptures, this promise of salvation is mentioned a number of times. It began in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3.15, God, uh, Christ speaking, says, I'll put enmity between thee and between the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This promised seed is the whole focus of the Old Testament prophecies, the coming of the seeds. A very, very significant event. And this is where I want to focus a little bit on what this coming of the seed did and accomplished. Particularly, Christ here is said to, his, the prophecy is that one day he will accomplish something. He will bruise the head of the serpent. Isn't that right? So I want to look at that a little bit. This promise that is given that through the entire Old Testament time, this promise of a savior, of a seed that would come, is a promise that sustained people. They believed it, they trusted in it, they looked forward to it eagerly with great anticipation. Not only people on earth, but also these three people in heaven, Enoch and Moses and Elijah. And as Enoch and Moses and Elijah were looking down at this promised seed that would come and crush the serpent's head, all during this time, they could see that Satan was not yet crushed and not yet defeated. I want you to think about that for a minute. Because the promise here that was given at the beginning was one day the seed would come and would crush the serpent's head. Isn't that right? And so for this whole period of earth's history, Satan's head was not yet crushed. In other words, he has not yet been defeated. And these three men in heaven, Enoch and Moses and Elijah, are looking down on earth and beholding the work and the manifestation of Satan and what he is doing. And it is for this reason that when Christ came to resurrect Moses, the devil came and said, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you think you're doing? You have not defeated me. Not yet anyway. You have no right to claim Moses. This, this is the, the reasoning, or this was the strength of the devil's argument. You with me? And so a lot was hinging on the work of the seed and what he would accomplish. Of course, that's the same thing that God uh, had promised Abraham, Genesis 22:18, And in thy seed shall all the nations 
of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. This promised seed that would come and crush the serpent's head. Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah 9, 6. We're familiar with that. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. These are all the promises of what the Messiah would do. Now notice carefully in this prophecy, it says all these things are still future because the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called. That's all future. Something to look forward to because that's when Christ would ultimately you know, become all these things in a special way for his people. The everlasting father here is referring to Christ as the second Adam when he became the father of a new race. That's why it's a future prophecy. And so for all this time, for all this period, people were waiting and looking forward to that. And you can just imagine, you know, for 4,000 years, this building anticipation, building and building and building. As the work of Satan is going on and on and on, and it gets so bad. At one point it got so bad, God had, actually, uh, had to actually use a flood to clean out the earth. Remember that? Daniel puts it this way. And he gives a bit more details here. Daniel's prophecy says in uh, Daniel 9, 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. All these things had not happened while Daniel wrote these words down. There were still things that the seed would accomplish. That's why we're saying the only thing that was sustaining everyone during this period is this promise. This promise is of vital significance. And it was on the strength of this promise that if people believed this promise, God rewarded that faith. And we have three shining examples of that in Enoch and Moses and Elijah. Believing the promise that would come. The promise that was yet to be fulfilled. And Christ, of course, would accomplish that. Now, I want us uh, to examine something here important because uh, this is something some people get confused over and it's not necessary. Uh, salvation during this whole period was by grace through faith, just as it is like in any other, other period. But that grace through faith was based on the promise. That's what salvation has always been. And that's why they were longing and looking forward to the time when the devil would finally be defeated, when his head would finally be crushed. And so then the time came for the seed to come. And I want you to think about something. What is it when Adam and Eve sinned and when the whole human race really fell, sinned and fell? What is it that Adam and Eve needed the most? Okay, a savior, that's true. But uh, in practical terms... Uh, what, what they had lost by partaking sin, what did sin bring in? Sin brings death. And so what is it that Adam and Eve needed the most? It is life. Of course, the Savior would bring that. And hope, of course, through a promise of life, so on and so forth. Life, the antidote of death is life. Right? And this is what Christ was to bring and accomplish. This is why it says in Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life as a ransom for many. 
That's the purpose of his mission. And in giving his life, he would accomplish all these things of defeating Satan, of bringing in everlasting righteousness, of making an end of sin, of making reconciliation, and all these things that were prophesied about him. Now, when was this life promised? All the way at the beginning. When was this life actually given? When Christ came and spoke these words. He came to give his life, to fulfill that uh, promise. This is a very significant point to keep in mind, brothers and sisters, because this, like I said, this uh, helps uh, clarify some of the issues that uh, we get confused over needlessly. The Bible says that uh, Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, right? That's at the beginning. Well, a long time for the beginning. But for our purposes, it's at the beginning. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world is the promise that one day Christ would give his life. The time when that was fulfilled is when he said, like we just read, when he came to earth, he came for the purpose of giving his life. That's right here. You see the difference between a promise and a fulfillment. And that's why Satan was not crushed during this whole period. Because Christ had not yet carried out or fulfilled that promise. And this time now is when he would come and meet Satan face to face. See, brothers and sisters, this period in earth's history is the most significant event in the entire history of the universe. When Christ came to defeat Satan. Everything and the whole universe was dependent on this particular point. This is what I'm hoping to, to illustrate for you. And of course, when Christ came down to meet the devil on his ground and to contend with the devil all through the trials of Christ, all through the experiences, he met the devil and step by step he was defeating him. He met him in the wilderness, you remember, and all through his life. Step by step, this showdown, this ultimate fulfillment, finally of this promise, kept getting closer and closer until it finally climaxed in the last battle, which was on the cross and on the cross it came to an end and of course we know Jesus said it is finished it is finished what was finished what was finished when he said it is finished what is it that was finished okay the head was crushed what's that Okay, Satan's fate was sealed, the sacrifice. Okay, these are all right and correct answers. It is finished, it's loaded. You can do a whole series on that. But I want to focus on one particular point that is of relevance to us and to these people up in heaven as well, Enoch and Moses and Elijah. Let's see how the angel puts it. Matthew 1, 21. And he shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Salvation here was still future, still by promise. And then when Jesus, towards the end of his life in John 17, 4, says, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. What work was he given to do? Save his people from their sins. And so on the cross, when he said, it is finished, in other words, the plan of salvation and saving his people from sin has been accomplished. That which everyone was looking forward to for 4,000 years now is 
fulfilled or finished. The work of saving mankind is finished. The work of Christ giving his life as a ransom for many is done. It is accomplished. The promise has finally come to pass. And so that's illustrated by the serpent's head being crushed. This promise is of great, great, great significance. You know, I, I, I try and picture sometimes myself, what if I was living during this period of Earth's history? What would it have been like, you know? Salvation was still coming, and if you believe that promise, God would reward your faith. This is the promised seed that was to come. Now, in Revelation chapter 12, there's a very interesting description of this particular event. I want us to read it together. But I just want to give a little bit of background. You know, Revelation chapter 12, the chapter begins with the woman standing on the moon, clothed with the sun, with a crown of 12 stars. You know that? And we know who that woman represents. It is the church, right? The faithful church. And the Bible tells us that this woman was with child, and the dragon was standing to devour her child, and then she had a child. And who's that child? It's Christ. And then it says that her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Now what event is that? The ascension, resurrection and ascension. In, in a very short uh, space, in a very short verse, it summarizes quickly uh, the experience and accomplishment of the life of Christ. And then we read these verses from verse 7. It says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast into the earth, out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now here's a question. When did this war take place? The most common answer is before creation, back in the very beginning when there was this whole war in heaven and Satan was cast out. But the context of the chapter, brothers and sisters, is dealing with a different time period. This war comes directly after Christ ascended and went to heaven. You with me? Now, I'm not saying there was no war at the beginning and Satan was cast out. There, there's no question about that. But the primary focus of this particular chapter is trying to tell us something that we miss if we misunderstand the timing of this war. Now, let's keep reading and see what I'm trying to say exactly, because as a result of this war and Satan being cast out, the next verse tells us in verse 10, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come what? Salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Immediately after this war and Satan is cast out, there is this voice that is heard in heaven that says, now is come salvation. When did salvation come? When Christ fulfilled that promise through all the ages that one day the seed would come. He said, Father, I have finished the work which you gave me to do. And when he took that finished work, that accomplished task, and he went back to heaven, something happened in heaven to Satan. There was war, and he was cast out. And this announcement is made that now there is salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. And the evidence is Satan has been cast down. Now, that's a, that, uh, that puts a very different perspective on that passage all of a sudden, right? 
You see, we, don't, we fail to appreciate what verse 10 means when we don't understand the timing of what this chapter is dealing with. Now, of course, that salvation, like I said, is what's been promised through the ages. Uh, and strength has come. What does the strength refer to? I mentioned the verse in John 1. It says, as many as believed him, to them gave he what? Power to become the sons of God. In other words, this is saying here, heaven is announcing publicly that all these things have now come to pass and are realized. That's why the word now is very significant. And it says, in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. And of course, like someone mentioned, this was manifested on earth on the day of Pentecost. And we're going to come to that in a minute. Notice the next verse. Now, actually, before we go to, to, to the next verse, when it says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying all these things. Who do you think is in heaven who is very interested who would have heard that voice and that announcement? Enoch, Moses, and Elijah. They would have heard that announcement. And in verse uh, 12, the next verse says, Therefore rejoice ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Why are the inhabitants of heaven rejoicing? Okay, there's a lot of good answers, secure. Okay, something happened. Who, would it, who do you think would have been at the forefront of that choir of rejoicing, singing at the top of their voices? Enoch and Moses and Elijah. Why? Because that promise that for thousands of years they've been looking forward to now is accomplished, it is finished. Something happened to their place and their position in heaven as a result of what Christ accomplished. Do we realize that? And here is, the, here is the challenge. If it made a difference even to the people who are already in heaven, then how much more to us here on earth? Amen. We really do not understand or realize what it means to be living on this side of the cross. And hopefully that will you know, get clearer as we go. But we see, you see what we're saying? This is of grave, great, great and grave significance. So in heaven, this announcement is made. Now is come salvation. The devil is cast down, the accuser of our brethren. And an entire upside-down shift takes place in the world. Enoch, brothers and sisters, was waiting for this event for 3,000 years. You think you ever waited for something for a long time? I don't think there was a longer waiting period, and I don't think there was a greater event to look forward to with anticipation. His place in heaven was dependent on that event. And of course, they rejoiced that now they were safe and secure forever. Now, I want to ask a question here, because some people, when I discuss this with people, some people, you know, they give me a funny look and say, oh, hold on, this, this sounds really far out, you know. I want to ask you a question. I want you to think carefully about this question. Was it possible for Christ to fail in his mission? Yes. Of course. Was it possible for him to sin and fall? Yes. Okay, that's good. Everybody believes that's good. Now, of course it was because all these temptations and all this controversy that he met Satan on the ground, it wasn't just a movie. It wasn't play acting. It was real. It was winner take all. 
It was a real battle. And so there was a real risk. Now, I want to ask you a question. If Christ had failed, praise God, he didn't. If he had failed, what would have happened to Enoch and Moses and Elijah? You ever thought about that? They would have been evicted out of heaven. Not only that, but the whole universe would have been in jeopardy. So praise God that we only have to, you know, think about what might have happened. It's only in the theoretical. Reality is Christ has won, praise God. But that idea and that thought helps us appreciate a little bit of what it meant to these people when Christ accomplished what he did. Up until that point, their position and their stay in heaven was not yet permanent forever. It was held in suspension, pending the fulfillment of this promise. All of a sudden, that promise now means so much more, hopefully. All of a sudden, what Christ accomplished there means so much more. Something that was eagerly anticipated. When did that risk, so to speak, when did that risk end for them and their place was finally permanent? When he said it is finished, when it's done, when the battle was done, when that risk of failure ended for Christ. That's when permanency took place. And now the Bible says it's come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, uh, when Paul said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross, right? We all quote this verse. Do we know what it means? When you realize what happened in this event, this time period when Christ was on earth, you will want to glory in nothing else. That's all you want to talk about. Because this is what turned the world upside down. Totally and completely. Now I want to look at some practical differences here between this period of before the cross and this period after the cross. That's why I was saying uh, before uh, and after. There is a before and after circumstance. And like I said earlier, the story that we said, when, uh, when a person who has a home, when they make their final repayment, then the home is Secure. securely theirs forever, even though they've been living in it for all these years. This is when that final payment was made for these people. And there is a before and after. They were still in the same home, but something changed about them dwelling in that home. Now, some practical differences here. Let's look at this verse. Oh, before we go to that verse, let's look at this particular event. That's why before Christ went to the cross, you remember God sent two people to encourage him from heaven, right? He didn't send angels. He didn't send Gabriel. He sent Moses and Elijah. Now, isn't that interesting? Why Moses and Elijah? Now, remember, they were with him in heaven for a very long time. They, they talked about all these things that he was actually carrying out on earth then and there. You see, because Moses and Elijah, they can relate to Christ as human beings who have gone through trials and sufferings. And Moses and Elijah, their place in heaven was dependent on the success of his mission. That's why they we're saying there is a before and there is an after. Even for people who are already in heaven as a result of the work of Christ. Can we really understand how great that work really was? In, uh, and so we illustrate this, of course, and uh, we're living on this side 2,000 years. So for the majority of Earth's history, the Earth was living during a time when Satan was not defeated and when they were all looking forward to this time. We're living in this time here in 2,000 years and we're probably down close to the very, very end of time when these things take place. 
Let's look at Luke 10, 18 and 19. I want to look at some practical aspects here in our last section. Luke 10, 18 and 19. Jesus speaking, he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. When Jesus said this, what was he referring to? Okay, silence. <laughs> Nobody wants to say anything anymore. Look, it's okay. Don't, don't worry. When he says, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven, what, what was he seeing? He was seeing not the war at the very beginning. He was seeing the result of the work that he would soon accomplish and finish. And in light of that, he says, I give unto you power. Now, I want you to understand the context here a little bit. This is when the disciples came back after the missionary trip where Christ had sent them to preach the gospel. And they came back. They were very excited. Remember what they told him? Lord, even the devils are subject to us in your name. They were very excited. And this is when Jesus says, I'm giving you power over all the power. I saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven. This was as a preview of what would be the result of his defeating Satan. It would give an advanced power to his believers on earth against all the power of the enemy. Here's a question. Was this power that Christ was talking about here available before the cross? Okay, we have mumbles and mostly silence. Okay. Okay, not the same. Now, the answer is a definite no. I'll tell you why. Now, I'm not saying there was no power before the cross. There certainly was power. But this is an advanced standing that humanity has gained as a result of the work of Christ. In other words, the, word of, the words of Christ mean nothing. Christ was not telling them, I'm giving you something that's always been there. Right? His words have to mean something. He says, as a result of my work, Satan's going to fall from heaven. As a result of that, I'm going to open to you the floodgates of heaven. You're going to receive an advanced power because now salvation has come. And this advanced power is because Satan will be defeated. He wasn't defeated in the Old Testament. You with me? And so, if we put that in perspective, on this side of the cross we have Satan defeated. And we have now an abundance of power. A power that was promised and a power that is now realized. Do we realize the results of the defeat of Satan? Too many times we're living powerless lives, right? This promise that Jesus gave to his disciples is not just for them who are listening. He says, listen, as a result, I'm giving you power over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. This is for all of us today. Living on this side where Satan is defeated. So on a practical level, we need to realize, brothers and sisters, and believe and understand that we're living in a time when the devil has been defeated. It's a past done deal. It's not yet to come in the future. Too many times in our experience we're living like the devil is the winner and we're the losers. Right? Jesus said, I give unto you power. The devil's gone on a great propaganda scheme to try and hide his defeat from Christians especially because that's who he fears the most. 
Christians who really realize what it means when Jesus says, I give unto you power over all the power of the enemy. As many as believed on him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. And the devil, to a large degree, has been successful in his propaganda campaign. You know what I mean? And we end up living as if he's yet to be defeated, like this is still something to happen. I want to ask you a question. If you were given a choice, nobody is, but if you were given a choice, which time period would you prefer or choose to live in? I wouldn't change anything. I'm happy to be where I am, huh? On this side. Why is that? Because this looks better. This is vantage ground. You see, what Christ has accomplished through his mission and through his death and resurrection is he has given the human race and he has put us on vantage ground. He has given us an advantage. Now, someone might say, and like I said, I've, I've talked to, <laughs> to people about this, and this usually comes up. Someone might say, hold on, are you trying to say that the people living here have an advantage over the people living here? And the answer is? Yes, of course. And so the objection is, well, hold on, this is not fair. Because God is fair and God is consistent, this is not fair, so this is not true. You familiar with that? Who said God is not fair? The enemy. Why is it not fair? Why is it not fair for this side to have an advantage over this side? If you think about that, you see, our standard of what's fair and not fair is not how we should judge God. What we think is right, and I'll give you a few examples, but think about it carefully. Salvation is equally available to everyone before and after the cross. And it's available by grace through faith before and after the cross. Here it was by grace through faith through a promise. Here it's by grace through faith based on the accomplished promise. But the circumstances that surround the obtaining of the salvation is different before and after the cross. They had to obtain salvation while Satan was not yet defeated, if they believed. We obtained the same salvation, but now Satan is defeated. That makes a big difference. The people before and after the cross are all going to stand equally on the same sea of glass. We're not going to have a lower tier, okay? Equally. God is fair, brothers and sisters. He saves everyone. Everyone will be saved equally. But we should not expect God to manipulate circumstances in every certain circumstance so that they are identical. That's impossible. Let me give you a scenario. Some people today are born in a home. Uh, say they're born in, in, in the jungles in Africa or whatever, in a heathen, pagan home. And some people might be born in a prosperous country in a Christian home. Those two children, do you think one of them has an advantage? Of course, yes. Is God not fair then? You with me? There's different circumstances for people, but they will all have salvation equally available to them. So let's not use our standard of what's fair and not fair and, and cast that upon God and say, well, in order for God to be fair, everything before and after has to be equal, has to be the same. When you do that, you actually destroy what Christ came and did. Please don't tell me before the cross and after the cross, it's just the same. Just to maintain your level of fairness and thereby totally destroy and denigrate what Christ has come and accomplished. You see what I'm saying? This is highlighted, what Christ has done is highlighted as we see the contrast before 
and after. You with me? When we equate before and after, we destroy what he has done. Please, let us not do that. So God is very fair. God's going to save everyone. Let's look at another example, another practical example, as far as what the before and after really means, practically. So I want to look at this practically, not, not just theoretically. It needs to make a difference in our lives as well. And this, uh, this example serves as the seal of what Christ has accomplished. I'll ask you a question. Who's the first priest that's mentioned in the scriptures? Okay, Melchizedek. Very good. That's exactly right. Uh, he's not the most famous priest. Usually people think of Aaron straight away when we think of a priest. He came later. The very first priest, the very first mention of a priest is Melchizedek in Genesis 14, 18. It says, a Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Now, his significance is because we're told that uh, in the book of Hebrews, Christ likens the priesthood, of, uh, sorry, Paul likens the priesthood of Christ to the priesthood of this man, Melchizedek, the man that Abraham uh, met. Now, I want to ask you a thought question. I want you to think carefully about this because uh, perhaps this is something that's not often considered. Here's the question. Was Christ a high priest during the Old Testament time in heaven? I'll repeat the question so you can think clearly about it. Was Christ a high priest during the Old Testament time in heaven? Okay. Who says yes? Let, let's, let's take a show of hands. Yes. Who says yes? Hands up if you say yes. Okay. All right. A few hands. Okay. Good. Thank you. Hands down. Okay. Hands up. Who say no? Okay. A few hands. All right. Hands up if you didn't put your hands up. <laughs> okay. Hopefully, I'm, I'm, I'm getting you thinking. It's good to see that some people think this way and some people think that way. So that means we're going to see if we can find the answer. And probably those who didn't want to say yes or no, just say, I'll just wait to see what the preacher says next. <laughs> and then I'll answer. Okay, think about it carefully. I'm going to look at that a little bit. The answer is uh, no. The reason is a few. We're going to look at the reasons, but the answer is a definite no. And uh, remember, the Bible says Christ has made a priest after the order of Melchizedek, or like the order of Melchizedek. In other words, the order of Melchizedek, or Melchizedek, the person, was first. Right? Okay, let's look at a few verses. Uh, during this time period, what we're saying here, the, the claim we're making is that there was no high priest in heaven. Okay? I know this sounds really startling. That's okay. I can tell by some of the looks on your faces. It sounds really out there. But just hear me out a little bit, because brothers and sisters, we really need to understand what Christ accomplished and what it actually means practically. Let's look at a few verses just to get an idea about that. Hebrews 8.3, For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. Referring to Christ. When did Christ have something to offer? When he came and said, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. Did he have something to offer before? So he could not be a, a priest. That's says every high priest has to offer something. 
You with me? Now, I know this is touching on, on, on you know, tricky ground because as Adventists, we know that the ministration of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary is everything to us as a people and everything to do with the sanctuary and God's way is in the sanctuary. But there is this assumption that we have about Christ's high priestly ministry that has no evidence. And this is what I'm challenging here. And hopefully we'll be able to, to see that together as well. So, because there was no high priest in heaven, this is why God instituted an earthly priesthood. To fill in that time and space until such a time when the promise was fulfilled. Think about it. If there was a high priest in heaven, why would God give them an inferior earthly priest? Right? Why, don't, why not just go to the priest in heaven? It is because there is no priest in heaven. In other words, the sanctuary in heaven was inoperable. It was not functioning because it had no high priest. And that's why God instituted an earthly priesthood with an earthly sanctuary, with earthly sacrifices, as a prophecy pointing forward to the time when the priest would come and take up his role in the heavenly sanctuary. You with me? Let's look at a few other verses just to make sure, because I know you might be thinking, whoa, this is really left field here now. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, referring to Christ, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. When is this now that he's referring to? When did Christ obtain a better ministry? When he came to earth. And that's why it says he is now the mediator of a better covenant. Or what we refer to as the new Covenant, isn't that right? So, right now, what we have here on this side is we have a heavenly priesthood. Now, all of a sudden, this side is looking really good. Right? And this side here is looking not as good. See, brothers and sisters, we need to realize that during this whole time for 4,000 years, there was no heavenly high priest for these people. Now, you might be thinking of all the theological ramifications and problems of that claim. You're saying, hold on, my sin and the people and the sacrifices and forgiveness. What in the world's going on? How can you make such a claim? There was no priest. There could be no priest. I want to ask you another question. When God instituted the earthly priesthood, remember he told Moses to anoint Aaron as high priest, right? Could Aaron function and work as a high priest before his anointing? Was it possible for Aaron to work and operate as a high priest before he was anointed? No, definitely no. When was Christ anointed? As the high priest of his people. After he ascended to heaven, when in Hebrews chapter 1, it says that God said to him, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness. 
So, could Christ work as a high priest before he was anointed? Definitely not. So that's why we're saying what we are saying. And so here we have Christ as the high priest of his people in this glorious new heavenly priesthood. Let's look at another verse, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 8. We're almost there, so just a few more minutes. Hebrews 9a, the Bible says here, the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. Very significant verse. Think about that. This is the, the Spirit. Paul is saying here, the Spirit is indicating something. So long as the earthly tabernacle, which is what the first tabernacle was, that earthly tabernacle, so long as it was standing, so long as it was working and functioning and operating, the way into the holiest, the way into the heavenly, was not made manifest. What's that mean? It's not, a, it's not clear. It's not accessible. That's why there was this earthly priesthood, sanctuary, functioning. In other words, the earthly sanctuary, it seems here, served as a, as a block in the way of the heaven. That's what he's saying. So long as that's here, you can't get to that one. And the only way to get to the heavenly is for this one to be removed. Now, when was that removed? When Christ said it is finished. And in a very visible, marked manner, God indicated that that earthly system of sanctuary and service came to an end when that veil was rent. We all know the story. It has great significance. In other words, God is saying now is the time when the heavenly is going to be accessible. Because now there is a high priest to work in the sanctuary. So we no longer need this earthly system. And God took it out of the way. So what did the Jews do? They sewed up the curtain and they just kept on going. Right? There's no, that's why we don't have a priesthood today as believers. Because we have a heavenly priesthood. Yet there are so many people and groups and uh, churches that still function with a priesthood to a large degree based on the Old Testament system. So what did this end of the earthly sanctuary signify? It signified the coming of the new covenant, right? That's what the new covenant is all about. Now, this new covenant is very, very significant because in the Last Supper, Jesus told his disciples, Mark 14, 24, he said unto them, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. What does the blood mean? Life, right? The blood is life. Brothers and sisters, this is the active ingredient of the new covenant. It's what it's all about. This life of Christ is this power. That's the active ingredient of the new covenant. For 4,000 years, everybody in the world and in heaven was looking forward to this time. Now, I've had discussions with some people, and they actually said, and I found this really strange, they told me that the new covenant was still future. I don't know if you've heard that. I did. And I didn't know what to do with myself when I heard it because I just did a double spin, you know, double take. Like, what? And some people believe that, that the new covenant is still future. Because 
the claim is, well, there is still sin, isn't there? People are still sinning. Therefore, the new covenant hasn't happened yet. You need to believe what Jesus said. You know, I don't need to tell you that. We deal with that in kindergarten. As Jesus said it, you believe it. Jesus said, take, drink, this is my blood of the new covenant. It means that the new covenant is now here. It's not something future. You see, brothers and sisters, the new covenant started and began as a result of what Christ accomplished. If the new covenant is still future, what greater thing do you want God to do to indicate to you that now it's come? What greater thing than the death of His Son do you want God to do to indicate that the covenant has now come? Let us not destroy what Christ said, what Christ did. He said, take, drink, this is my blood of the new covenant. We too often, maybe unintentionally, insult Christ and denigrate what He has done. Meaning well, don't get me wrong. But that's why we need to examine the things that we believe. Let's look quickly or we'll just close. Hebrews 9.15, here's another one. Oh, we're not at Hebrews 9.15 yet. So Christ, as we said, He is the high priest. Hebrews 9.15. And for this cause, He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Wow, this is another heavy verse. What's that mean? See, the whole book of Hebrews is dealing with the high priesthood of Christ. If, if, uh, one thing I, I strongly recommend, if you haven't done it, is to read through the book of Hebrews in one sitting, in one hit, from beginning to end. And one time I was traveling, I had a long drive, and I heard the book of Hebrews a few times, you know, in one, and it really hit me. A few things hit me I didn't realize before. You see the whole focus and the whole point of the book. It's all about this high priesthood of Christ that changed everything. Paul is basically saying, listen, now we have something that was never there before. We have a high priest in heaven. Like, wow. So what's this verse saying? It says he's the mediator of the new covenant that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament. What are the transgressions under the first testament? All the sins that were committed during the time of the first testament or the old covenant or during the old testament time. In other words, it's saying that all these sins were actually accumulating and building up, waiting for Christ to come and deal with them. You with me? In other words, the sin of Moses and Elijah, and very likely Enoch, but we don't have any sins written about him, but the sins of Moses and Elijah were not dealt with until Christ came and could deal with them as a high priest. You realize that? That is why their place in heaven was dependent on that event. Not only them, but everyone else over here. But they're the only ones who are alive. You see, they, they present us with a very unique case of people who lived all during this time, and they're still alive, and they're alive here now, in heaven. Whereas all these people here, they were dying, of course. So on the cross, Christ took the accumulated sins of the whole Old Testament on everything, and now He dealt with it. So now someone might ask, well, are you saying these people were not forgiven in the Old Testament? No, of course they were forgiven based on the promise. And that forgiveness and that sin was realized and dealt with in an actual way when Christ actually came and took on the role of a high priest. 
And that's why the verse said, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now that promise of eternal inheritance is not risky anymore. It is not anymore dependent on something that is to happen. It is only dependent on whether you and I receive it. It's a done deal. It's a done package. In other words, the people who were living during this time period before the cross, they were living at a risky time, right? There was a certain risk involved because we all agreed that Christ and his mission could have possibly failed. What would have happened to the people who had died in faith here? Nothing. Paul says, if Christ is not risen, then your faith is what? Vain. Brothers and sisters, we're living here. There is no longer a promise of what Christ will do. We're living in a reality. There is no risk as far as salvation being secured. The only risk is how much we really believe. It. The coming of Christ established something that for thousands of years had never been available. Just looking at that should give us a, a wow factor. The people living here had no high priest. They were living when Satan was not yet defeated. Living on this side, we have a high priest and Satan has already been defeated. Hallelujah. Amen. We really have no idea what Christ has accomplished. Because brothers and sisters, you know, if we did, if we just did, things would be a lot different. And God is longing, heaven is longing for us to just get it. We're a bit thick. You see, the problem we have is this. We're living in this time period when we have a high priest, when Satan is defeated. And we assume subconsciously that that's how it's always been. Subconsciously, that's why some people might think, and I used to think that, so you're not the only one, that Christ was a high priest in the Old Testament. And then when I looked for the evidence and I found none, I had to adjust my thinking. When I adjusted my thinking, all of a sudden, this event here meant so much. It made all the difference in the world. Now, uh, as we close, I just want to close with a thought one of my favorite verses in this context, and I think it sums it up all very, very well. And that's in 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 to 10. <clears throat> it says, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Who hath saved us? What tense is that? Past tense. And called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That's the promise, right? It was given in Christ before the world began. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's a powerful verse. Paul was trying to encourage young Timothy as a young worker for the Lord. And he's reminding him, saying, listen, Timothy, God has already saved us. This promise that was hidden for ages in Christ Jesus now is made manifest when Christ appeared. Timothy, death has been abolished. Life and immortality have been brought to light. Don't you worry about any discouraging circumstances that meet you. Satan is a defeated foe. We have a high priest in the heavenly sanctuary right now, Timothy. And he's not saying that to Timothy alone, right? Brothers and sisters, this is powerful good news. 
And so on this side, the promise was, He shall save His people from their sins. Now He has saved us. Here, death was ruling during the, that whole time. Now we have life and immortality that have been brought to light. And they have not been brought to light only for people on earth. It's also for the people that were in heaven. Enoch and Moses and Elijah. That's why we looked at Enoch and his friends and the high priest. Now they have a priest in heaven working. They're very likely helping him in his work. He's working on our behalf. So let us realize, let us appreciate the distinction before and after because it highlights and magnifies what Christ has done. Now, maybe you can appreciate a little bit better what Paul said. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ because the cross changed everything. And if it wasn't for the cross, we would have nothing. So remember, Satan is a defeated foe. You have a high priest. Let your faith grasp a hold of that. If you can't, you can pray like that man. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. That's why the book of Hebrews is full of injunction to look to Christ as the minister. To consider the Christ as the high priest and apostle of our profession. That's my challenge. And I hope that as a result of what we talked about, you gained a deeper appreciation of what Christ has really accomplished. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.